Amen. Thanks so much for being here today. Go ahead, have a seat. Uh, ushers are going to come forward. Let's give as God has given to us. If you're here for the first, second, or third time, you've got that connection card in front of you. You're wondering how I'm going to get this filled out in the next two seconds. Don't worry about it. Uh, as you leave today, there's going to be some really nice people on your left that have a gift for you. Uh, you matter to us. You made this place matter to you this morning, so we just want to say thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, so, my name's Ken. I'm the campus pastor here. Uh, I have always been a talker, and as I grew up and found new ways to do dumb things, uh, I ended up talking myself into problems, talking myself into things that I later needed to apologize for. I think the worst of those uh, was in sixth grade. I've always been into sports. I've always hated losing, uh, and I've always not known when to really shut up in, in life. And uh, we were playing kickball because that's the ultimate authority of sports when you're in sixth grade. Uh, and the teacher was doing things one way. I thought we, they should be done the other way. I grew up watching ESPN Sports Center, So I have seen hundreds of those interviews with players after the game where they need to bleep out words. And I grew up on those. So I told the teacher in the strongest language that I knew as a sixth grader, which was really strong language because that's what you know as a sixth grader, uh, how she was doing things was wrong, how I think we should do th things was right. Uh, I got grounded for two weeks and my parents found out about it. Uh, and that began like, that, that was the epicenter of me saying something really, really dumb uh, and getting caught on it. Those people are going to be at Christmas for you, okay? So you think about your table, the way that it's going to look on Christmas. Uh, there's going to be people there who are really difficult. The people who say one thing too many. The people like me who don't really know when to stop talking. When the point has been made, feelings are hurt, and then they have one more line, those people are going to end up at your table. And for Anna's family and for my family, that's me. Uh, I'm coming to Christmas. And for all of us, we're going to have to deal with difficult people this Christmas. Christmas. That's just the way that it's going to be. Because what God wants to do in us is he wants to make us more and more like him in every single area. And one of those is going to be how we deal with difficult people. For Christmas, from the very beginning, it's been all about dealing with difficulty. Right, Luke 2 tells a story about Jesus' birth. It says in verse 4, it says, Joseph, which is Jesus' earthly dad, he was a descendant of King David, and he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea. David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him. He didn't say she came with him. It didn't say she was so excited. He had to take with him Mary, uh, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. We've got a picture of what it looked like for them to travel uh, to their town. Look at how excited he looks, right? I, I think I know how this worked out, okay? I wasn't there, but uh, I've got an opinion. They're talking about where we're going for Christmas this year. And Mary says, we went to your family last year. And Joseph says, yeah, but I'm a descendant of David. We have to go to my city this year. And it says there, they had to go to Bethlehem. There you go. It's biblical. And Mary says, well, you can go to Bethlehem, but I'm not walking a single step. And so Joseph says, I have an idea. And he buys a donkey. And he says, get on there. We're going. And his, his face says it all. Like he's in the middle of Christmas dealing with someone difficult. And for us in our lives, you might not have to travel by donkey to where you're going. But when you sit around the table, when the fixer-upper situation hits your dining room, there's going to be some difficult people. And so what God wants to do, what God wants to teach us, and what we're going to look at today is how God wants to use us in our lives, minister, minister to our hearts, and show us how to deal with difficult people. I love this because for me, this is, this is like 100% a day of all of you to, to figure out me, okay? is Because I am the difficult person there. I can look at all this and say, yes, all these things are going to be great. I need to do all of these things also 
because we're going to learn how to love difficult people. We're going to look at some stuff, and it's all bullet points. Why is it all bullet points? Because we're in, you're in the thick of it. You don't want an Ikea direction version of how to deal with difficult people, okay? You don't want, a, don't want a bunch of pictures. You don't want an analogy. You want something that is just rock solid. Okay, this is what I need to do. It's like a huddle in football. This is our huddle. We're not going to talk about field. We're not going to talk about how to run and how to do this cut and that cut and how to block. No, it's a few quick things. Clap, break, go score and win. So that's what we're doing. This is our huddle. Seven reasons that we're going to look at of why we get mad. That's where we're going to start. We're going to look at the things that happen around us, the things that happen to us, the things that we get sucked into that make us mad. And we're not just going to pull these out of thin air. We're going to pull these from a story that happens with a guy that's famous in the Bible. His name is David. David was a king over God's chosen people, Israel, at like their heyday. David is he's a man after God's own heart. He is godly, but also he is human. And so within David, we're going to see some of our own natural tendencies, and they're going to get fleshed out in somebody else's life so we can look at him and say, man, he should not have done that because it's not us and we can throw stones. But through the life of David, through an encounter that he has with a woman named Abigail, God's going to teach us how to love different people. So seven, things, seven reasons why we get mad. Let's jump into the story of David and Abigail. Chapter 25, 1 Samuel, verse 1. Here we go. David moved down to the wilderness of Maon, and there was a wealthy man from Maon who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time. This man's name was Nabal, and his wife Abigail was sensible and beautiful. But, da- but, Nabal, was a- but Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was crude and mean in all his dealings. When David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent 10 of his young men to Carmel with a, blessing, with a message for Nabal. So the first thing that, that we're going to see right here about why we get mad too easily is that we, we take serious and hurt, or we take, we take hurtful people too seriously. Okay, the laying the scene right here, you've got David, who's a man with somewhat of a temper, but he's still wanting to follow God. He's doing everything he can to follow God. And you've got this guy, Nabal, who doesn't care what he says about anybody. He's hurtful. He's rude. That's just who he is. We can see this coming a mile away as the two of them are going to collide because one person has an anger issue and one person has a saying dumb things issue. We can see this a mile away. And for all of us in our lives, there are people who can say the wrong thing to us at the wrong time and completely set us off. The reason is because you take them too seriously. You take that same look, you take that same saying, and you put it with somebody else that maybe we don't even know. It's some driver uh, driving down the highway that we just accidentally cut off, and they tell us where to go and what to do when we get there. And we're like, okay, yeah, it's fine. You know, whatever. We've got the whatever people in our life. We've got the whatever situations in our life. We read something online that we don't like. We see a shirt we don't like. Somebody's wearing the wrong cap that we don't like. And we're like, yeah, whatever. That's just who they are. But then that person that we can't stand and we don't like that thing about them. And they're going to make that look at you and make that comment while you're sitting at Christmas dinner and you're going to lose your mind. Why? Because all of us have that, this darkness in us where the people around us know exactly how to cut us down. You know exactly how to make us lose our mind in anger really easily. That's why we get mad is because we take things sometimes too seriously. These are not the seven reasons why we get mad. We're just going to hit on seven potential reasons why people get mad Another reason that we get mad is we get jealous. Okay, it doesn't say in this situation that David was jealous, but if Ken was in the story, I would be jealous. 
Okay, because Nabal is loaded. All you need to know about the 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, you look at that and say, like, that's one heck of a 4-H project. But what they're trying to say here is that Nabal is loaded. David at this time has a lot of people following him, but he has no home. They're just kind of going from camp to camp. He's homeless, and so he comes to this guy who's got everything, and he wants, wants a little bit of food. And he gets, if it was me, I would get jealous. I would 100% get jealous. Because he's hungry, he sees somebody with food, and, and you would think, man, if I only had that. Let's jump in with the story, verse 6. Peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own. I am told that it is sheep shearing time. While your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never harmed them, and nothing was ever stolen from them. Ask your own men, and they will tell you this is true. So would you be kind to us, since we have come at a time of celebration? Please share any provisions you might have on hand with us and with your friend David. David's young men gave this message to Nabal in David's name, and they asked for a reply. And, as, and they waited for a reply. Who is this fellow David, Nabal sneered to the young men, and who does the son of Jesse think he is? So the third reason that we get mad in life is we assume that we know everything about everyone. David's people go to Nabal, they ask for just a little bit of food, can we have something? Nabal says no, because he's probably the type of person who ran away. Probably probably the type of servant who had a good master, and instead of working hard and having a job, he just runs away. That's what he assumes is going to happen. For us, for our assumptions about people to break, nothing changes those faster than getting to know people. For all of us, we make snap judgments on people, we make assumptions about people, we make first impressions about people, and nothing is going to flatten those and change them faster than getting to know people. And the church is the best place for people to get to know people forever since its very beginning. It's been the hub that people who have nothing in common except for Jesus come together and follow Jesus together because as a group from a ton of different directions, going a ton of different directions, this is the one thing that we have in common is that we're sitting in here today because we want more of God in our life or we want more of something in our life and we're gonna try to see if it's God today and that's what brought you through these doors. Is that all of us today want a little bit more. And the church is the place that should be modeling this for the rest of the world. We get angry because we think we know everything about everyone and then you get to meet people and you realize, man, people are way more deep, things are way more in depth Challenges that people have, victories that people have are different than anything that I could know, imagine, experience. And this only happens as we get to know people. For us as a church, we want to provide tons and tons of opportunities for people to get to know people, to figure out and to find out the great things that God has done in those of us in this room. When the new year hits, I'm going to make, for some of you, I want to make your new year's resolution for you. I'm your pastor, so I want to have that authority in your life. I want your resolution to be to get involved in a life group. There, there are groups that meet between four and like 30 people. Uh, we look at some specific thing where, where we've got a theme that's consistent for the whole group. And for Anna and me, it's going to be integrating our finances and the way that we spend money and save money around who God is in our lives, bringing those two things together. And so we're going to study that for 10, 12, 15 weeks. Others is going to be looking at kind of phase of life struggles or books that people write about God or books in the Bible and saying, what does God want to teach our group in this time? How does God want to shape us as a community through these things? And so we journey at that as a group. We share as a group. We bounce ideas and thoughts and plans and dreams and prayers off of each other as a group. It's a place to come to know each other and come to know people. That way, when you come in here on a Sunday, it's not just a bunch of faces that you don't know. 
You come in here and you're, you're reconnecting with people whose lives you've been invested throughout the week. Life groups are an awesome opportunity for us uh, to get to know each other. For me, I look at this and I think of my Friday morning shape group. This is a group of me and a handful of other guys who meet at the Starbucks at Clovis in Kings Canyon at 6 a.m. We get together, we read our Bibles, we order our drinks, we get caffeine so it'll push us through the rest of the day and it's awesome. Uh, We share, we explain, hey, this is how the stuff I read in the Bible is hitting me and my life today. Pray for each other and then at 6.45 we're out because we all got to go to work. That's our guys group of getting together, of doing life together, of meeting each other and and people who have nothing else together in common, coming together to worship God and pray for each other together. It tears down the assumptions of of first impressions and thinking we know everything about everyone because we've gotten to know each other. December 16th, uh, it's two Saturdays from now. We're going to meet here at 9.30 out in the parking lot. We're going to have a bunch of Starbucks cards that have $5 on them and some information about our church. And what we're going to do is we're also going to have maps of neighborhoods around our church. And we're going to take the information about Mountain View Sunnyside. We're going to take the Starbucks card. And we're going to go into our neighborhoods, knock on doors, count to 20. Because after 20, if they haven't opened, they're not opening. Uh, And when people open, we're going to say, hey, my name is Ken. This is, insert your name here. We're from Mountain View Sunnyside. We've got a a Christmas gift for you that we want to give you just today to say, that God loves you. And some people are going to open the door, said not interested, and shut the door and go back to watching TV. Some people are going to open the door, say thank you so much. This is how you could pray for me. I'm so glad that God saw me today. We're doing this because God doesn't just love the people here that find their way here at 11 a.m. on a Sunday, but the people who are all around us. And what God wants to do is he wants to use us to take the good news of Jesus and to spread it through our neighborhood, even for people who don't even know that we exist right now. And so neighborhood blessing for Christmas is going to be a chance for us to embody that, us to say yes to that, us for some of you to take a ginormous risk because you don't talk to strangers because you're smart and, and, and to actually tell somebody about Jesus' love for them, to pray for a stranger, to knock on a door and to talk to somebody willingly, not because it's a dare, but because you want to be used by God that morning. You're going to get a ton more reminders and information about that. But uh, put it in your calendar now, 9.30, December 16th, right here. Bring your jacket. It's going to be really, really good. Another way of, of getting over the assumption that we know everything about everyone is baptism. We had a baptism a couple months ago, and we had four people stand up here and tell about the amazing things that God has done in their lives. And we want to do that again next week. If you're interested in getting baptized and sharing the difference that God has made in your life, baptism is the outward expression of the inward work that Jesus has done for all of us. Then talk to me or Greg or Tim after the service. We would love to get you uh, locked and loaded for baptism next week. Fourth reason that we get mad is we get arrogant about our own success. So David comes to Nabal, he says, "I, I would love something to eat. Can you share anything with me? And Nabal says, who is this guy? No, my people have worked hard. We're all going to eat. This guy, David, he can get out of here. We get arrogant about our own success. We talked about this a little bit last week. So what, what kills that fast about our own arrogance is the idea that everything that we have is a gift that's been given to us by God. That we don't earn anything. We're not self-made in any way, but instead we humbly receive from God. God wants us to be generous people. And so if we view everything that goes through our hands as a gift from God, it equips us and it enables us to be able to give as God has provided for us. To be generous with what God's given to us. So we get mad because we get arrogant about our own success. Let's continue with the story. Verse 12. 
So David's young men returned and told him what Nabal said. Get your swords, was David's reply as he strapped on his own. Then 400 men started off with David and 200 remained behind to guard their equipment. Man, why, why do we get angry? We, we get angry because we go back to our usual way of doing with th- dealing with things. So David was a warrior. He's being violent right here because that's, that's his pattern. That's what he's always done. So somebody says something to him. If all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. And for David the warrior, he sees somebody who's being a jerk. And he says, okay, get your swords. We're going to kill him because that's what David's done. For all of us, we have a default pattern that when anger, that when difficulty comes our way, we see one way out of it. And that is the way that we have always done things. And what God wants to do is he wants to say, hey, when you give your whole life to me, that means you're giving your whole life to me. Even your default way of dealing with frustration with anger. And what I want to do is I want to come in and I want to start a fixer-upper project inside of you. And I want to take out your way of doing things and replace it with my way of doing things. So why does David resort to violence? Because David's violent, and God wants to lead him out of that. And then lastly, why do we get mad? We get mad because someone else recruited us to their cause. So David's messengers get mad. They go back. They tell David, and David says, all right, I'm going to get 400 people with me, which is way more people than initially were involved, and us as a group, we're going to go attack this city. For some of us, we have entered into conflict. We've taken on other people's anger because they recruited us into that. It's why we get angry. And for us to be able to love difficult people, all these things this year have to stop with us. That we're not going to take hurtful people seriously. We're not going to get jealous. We're going to allow ourselves to feel unappreciated sometimes and not lash out in anger. That we're we're not going to assume that we know everything about everyone. That we're not going to be arrogant about our success. That we're not going to go back to our usual way of doing things. And we're not going to take on other people's offenses. So this is where the situation is right now. You've got violent David. You've got say anything to anyone and say the wrong thing at the wrong time, Nabal. And the two forces are going to collide until something happens. Verse 14, let's read this. It says, Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail and told her, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master. But he screamed insults at them. These men have been very good to us, and we never suffered any harm from them. Nothing was stolen from us the whole time they were with us. In fact, day and night, they were like a wall of protection to us and the sheep. You need to know this and figure out what to do. For there is going to be trouble for our master and his whole family. He is so ill-tempered that no one can even talk to him. So you've got this toxic situation, the two sides that are going to collide. And stuck in the middle is Nabal's wife, Abigail. And little daughters are named Abigail now because instead of Abigail stepping into the situation like we would at Christmas and just assume that everything's finer or painting over and ignoring the fact that everybody's mad at each other, Abigail decides, I'm going to make a difference here. I'm going to take the disaster. I'm going to take the fixer-upper that is now still in the before section and I'm going to make something of it. I'm going to see restoration happen. I'm going to see peace happen. And for us to love difficult people this Christmas, for us to take on the heart of Jesus toward difficult people this Christmas, we're going to do what Abigail does. Because Abigail works for a chill Christmas. It's not just an ignoring Christmas. It's a Christmas that realizes that people have beef, and in the meantime, that she's going to work to make things peaceful. So five keys to a chill Christmas. The first two are really, really practical, and we can all do them. Verse 18, Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that have been slaughtered, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, 
100 clusters of raisins, and 200 fig cakes, which were probably gross and left behind. She packed them on donkeys, except for the fig cakes, and said to her servants, go on ahead and I will follow you shortly. But she didn't tell her husband what she was doing. Okay, right in there, there's two things that Abigail does that we can all do. Even if you look at yourself and you think, I am not a peacemaker whatsoever. I just bought a book on being more of a peacemaker in relationships so I can find out what to do and then we can talk and I can let you know. But the first thing that she does is Abigail doesn't wait. She reacts before there's a reaction. She reacts before there's a reaction. Right away, verse 18, it says that Abigail wasted no time. The whole situation changes because Abigail's not going to sit back and watch the two sides smash into each other. She says, I'm going to do something. For you, December 25th or whenever your family is going to get together is a set amount of days away. And you know the people who are going to sit at your table or you know the people that you're going to sit across from or next to and you're not going to be able to stand anything that they say. Don't wait for there to be a reaction. React before there's a reaction. Make the phone call you need to make. Prepare yourself. Explain what's going on and have people pray for you. Do all these things before there's a reaction. Because waiting and just letting it happen is never going to end well. People are like milk, okay? You put a bunch of people around you, you're going to be healthy, you're going to be strong. You let people around you fall over and just stay on the ground for two weeks, they're going to stink, okay? It's the same with milk. And the quicker that we deal with situations, the quicker that we deal with things in our own lives, the more peace we're going to see. So that she reacts before there's a reaction. Secondly, she makes it her responsibility that people get what they need. Okay, Abigail hears about the situation going bad, okay? And what does she do? She responds with food. Why food? Because it's a sign of blessing and all this stuff and hospitality. And with me, it always works 100% of the time. But she responds with food because David's hungry. Okay? And, and you look at what she's bringing. She's throwing together tons of stuff. One thing is she throws together five sheep, slaughters them, and brings them to David. So you think, wow, that's a lot. Like, she's really going overboard. No, no, no. Nabal has 3,000 sheep, all right? This is, I figured it out mathematically, this is one-sixth of a percent. Okay, if you make $100,000 a year, this is just to have round numbers and stuff. If you make $100,000 a year and you realize there's a massive crisis on hand and your generosity is going to be what solves this problem, she brings the equivalent of $16. Okay, you can't even buy good pizza for $16. But that's what she brings because David needed this. Abigail makes it her responsibility to see that people get what they need. Sometimes that's all it takes. You look at the situation. You look at the person behind the situation. You ask yourself, okay, what do they need here? 16 bucks? Cool. There we go. Problem solved. She's not looking at it to say, like, how little can I do to get them to shut up? She says, because been there, parent of three. Notice how my wife didn't say no. She, she laughed also. She says, okay, what, how can I bless this situation? How can I be active in this situation? She gives the people what they need. And all of us can do that. We know the people that are going to sit at our table and we're going to, like our insides are just going to get that hot, awful feeling, you know, when that something bad is happening. And we know what they need and we want to be people who are going to love difficult people this year and not make them more difficult. What else does she do? Thirdly, she chooses humility while she still has the chance. Verse 19, she sends her people off and she says, I'm going to go with you. She didn't have to do that. 
She's the wife of the richest man in town, the guy with 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Her family is loaded. She could have just sent her servants to do the servant stuff, but instead she says, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to choose a heart of humility. She's taking it upon herself to make things right. 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He's a fool just as his name suggests. The fourth thing that Abigail does, the fourth key to a chill Christmas, is you maintain a culture of honor. You know, Abigail doesn't come to David and says, you messed up. She doesn't say that. She doesn't say, you knew that my husband was ill-mannered. Why didn't you just keep your mouth shut? She comes and she says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. As much as this is my fault, I'm taking responsibility for it. Instead of saying, David, you blew it. Why did you have to react? Why are you always so angry? She maintained a culture of honor. And fifthly, she used her words to bless and build up. She comes to David. She says, I accept all blame. I'm sorry. On behalf of my family, I'm sorry. And like that, the situation is calm. Like that. It goes from two armies, 400 people ready to ransack and terrorize and level a city, and they all immediately stop, turn around, and go home. Because what started with careless words and what started with a bad heart is completely stopped dead in its track by careful words and a caring heart. And the thing is, is that God wants, us to, God wants to use us to do that this Christmas. For all of us, when we invite Jesus into our life, we're saying, okay, God, I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. And within that all, there's a ton of space for God to fix things up inside of us. And there's no disaster that's so big that God looks at us, even, when, even if it's with our family, even if it's stuff that's been decades and decades old. There's nothing where God looks at and he says, I, I can't fix that. That's too much. He says, you know what, I'm going to show you the way to live in peace, and then I'm not just going to put it out there. I'm going to empower you to actually be men and women who love difficult people the way that I would. And so what happens? Three potential results of showing love to difficult people. Here's what happens. Verse 33. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. This is David talking to Abigail. For I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, who has kept me from hurting you, that if you had not hurried out to meet me, not one of Nabal's men would still be alive tomorrow morning. Then David accepted her present and told her, return home in peace. I have heard what you said. We will not kill your husband. When Abigail arrived home, she found that Nabal was throwing a big party and was celebrating like a king. He was very drunk, and she didn't tell him anything about her meeting with David until dawn the next day. In the next morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him what had happened. And as a result, he had a stroke, and he laid paralyzed on his bed like a stone. And about ten years later, the Lord struck him, and he died. That's how it ends. So the first potential result of you working for peace, of you doing all these things, is Nothing. There is no guarantee that this is going to work, okay? Taking a sharp left turn, but go with me here, all right? My favorite football team for the NFL is the Detroit Lions because they are terrible, and there is so much room on that bandwagon that I just get to love them every loss that they have. 
About 10 years ago, they moved into a new stadium. Most good teams destroy the old stadium immediately. The Lions kept it around for 10 years because they're the Lions. So this morning, they were supposed to demolish it. And when this happens on a big thing this big, like you get a drone and put a camera on it and park it about a quarter mile away, and then you just watch the destruction and the building falling down on itself and everything as, as it's all leveled. So if you've seen the video already this morning, they had the 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 countdown, and then you see like 15 little explosions going off, and then the building is still there. So you know your team is bad when you can't even destroy your stadium the first time. So now I, I really fear for the people who are going to have to go into where it's already been bad and try and double destroy it. Hopefully it'll work the second time um, and that it won't fall down on the people trying to double destroy it. But that's what it could be like. You do everything. You do everything right. You call in the experts. You read the books. You spend the time praying and fasting. And you go into Christmas. And the person will not change. And that's not up to us. It's not up to us. If it would, if applying all these things and following the steps and doing everything right would be guaranteed to affect their behavior, that'd be called witchcraft because that sounds a lot like a spell. God's not saying change everybody else's behavior. God is saying, let me into your heart. You know, the one that has your issues, the one that has your struggles with people, the one that has your assumptions, the one that rushes to your snap judgments. Let me in there first. Because there's no guarantee that anything's going to change. Abigail never got a thank you. He, I mean, Nabal didn't look at her and as soon as she comes home and he finds out everything, he didn't say, all right, immediately, I've already booked you a manicure and a pedicure and a massage and a lunch with your girlfriends, not even with me. Like, you're going to go have the best day ever. I've reserved a room for you in the hotel. I'm going to take the kids tonight. You're going to have a full weekend being pampered because you saved everything that we own. Instead, he does nothing. And that could be what happens. That could be what happens. But again, it's not about us generating a response from somebody else. It's about us as much as we can saying, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus in this area of my life around these people in my life. I'm going to choose humility even if they don't. I'm going to react before there's a reaction even if there's never a positive reaction. I'm going to make it my responsibility for people around me to get what they need. I'm going to maintain a culture of honor even as I'm being dishonored. And we could see nothing changed. But we could also have peace in the short term. I mean, what, one of the big good points in the story is aside from the guy who has a stroke, nobody dies. I mean, there aren't a lot of occurrences where David, a warrior after God's own heart, decides he's going to ransack a city and then nobody dies. There's zero loss of life here because Abigail got involved and she saved the city. For us, for you saying, this Christmas I'm going to be somebody who loves that difficult person and you have a name and a face and a birthday and a phone number, all that stuff for them. For you saying, okay, God, this is what I'm stepping into this year. You're going to step into it and you're increasing the likelihood that there's going to be peace. That God's going to respond to your heart change, your heart work, and say, all right, I'm going to grant that peace. The person is going to see the difference. The person is going to see the reaction and they're going to say, all right, I'm into being peaceful. This is going to be a peaceful Christmas like nothing else. There's going to be peace in the short term. And the third potential result is that our humility and our effort create an open door for a fixed relationship. Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, praise the Lord. He's avenged the insult that I received from Nabal and he's kept me from doing it myself. Nabal has received the punishment for his sin. Then David sent messengers to Abigail to ask her, to become his wife. 
And there's a humility and effort that led to an open door for a relationship. David ends up taping Ab- Abigail, the woman who, who's already shown him that she has a pure heart and she's somebody who's going to work for peace. And so David comes back, he hears that her husband died and he took her as his wife. Granted, that's not going to work at your family gathering, okay? Because that, that's gross. That's a totally different on-ramp, different issue, different sermon. But the point of there being an open door for a relationship is true, and it goes both horizontally and vertically. For us to walk into Christmas, for us to bring our situation and the work that God has done into our table, our situation, and being people of peace, being men and women who say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this on the line. I might get absolutely nothing for it. But we're going to live and lead loving, difficult people. We're going to leave a door open for a relationship. And that really matters because for most of us, we have people at our table that don't follow Jesus. And so this Christmas, our first gift is going to be a heart and a life that is dedicated to following Jesus, even to the point that it invades the areas where people might not want anything to do with us, but they need Jesus. And this Christmas, your attitudes, your action are going to be pointing people who are far from God to God. And it also works vertically because God made an effort for us. God loved us when we were the most difficult people on the planet. Not just difficult people, but his enemies. And the message of the cross, the message of the Bible, the message of Christians in general is that when we were at our absolute worst, when we were at our absolute most difficult, God came in in the person of Jesus to bring us to himself. He didn't wait until we got easy. He didn't wait until we were less difficult, but he invaded us in our most difficultness that he lived the life that we could never live, that he paid the debt that we could never pay, that he sacrificed his life for our life so we could have a relationship with him. And so this Christmas, we get to take on God's heart for difficult people. We can say, stay out of here. I'm gonna react. I'm gonna be nice when you're nice. We can put up a wall. We can say, nobody's allowed in here, into our hearts. Or we can say, all right, I'm gonna be vulnerable. I'm gonna be humble the way that God is. With Jesus who is equal with God but took on the form of a human to come and bring us into relationship with God. We can take on that type of humility. And we can work toward a peaceful Christmas where difficult people are going to feel love from us. They're going to experience love from us because we know what it is to be loved in our difficultness, because we know what it is to find forgiveness, because we know what it is to have a God who loves us before we deserved it and who worked for our salvation long before we ever said thank you and long before uh, we ever changed. We know that. As Christians, we know that we celebrate that and we get to model that this year at Christmas. Let's stand and pray. So, Father God, I thank you that you came for us when we were difficult. Thank you that you came for us when we were broken. You came for us when we were lost. You came for us because you want to teach us what love, what forgiveness, what mercy, what humility, what all those things are. You came for us to model that. This year, as we gather uh, with difficult people, as we ourselves are the difficult people, God, I pray that we're going to be people who model the spirit of Abigail. Uh, that react before there's a reaction, that, that work to see that people get what they need, that choose humility, that choose honor, and that use our words to bless and to build up. God, I pray that we're going to be people like that. If you're here and you've never made the decision to put Jesus in charge of your life, to ask him to come in and forgive you of your sins from the inside of you to the outside of you, I want to give you that chance today. You're not saying that you think you're perfect or better, you're agreeing with every other Jesus follower in here. 
We are sinners who are separated from God. And Jesus came to, to live the life we couldn't live, to pay the penalty we couldn't pay, and to bring us into a relationship with God. If that's you, you've never done that before, I'm going to count to three, and when I say three, if today's your day, just say yes to Jesus. I just want you to look at me and raise your hand. And as we pray, some people are going to lead you through a prayer, giving your life to Jesus and asking him to forgive you and change you from the inside. It's the best decision you could ever make. So one, God loves you. He always has. He always will. And today, he's calling you to follow him. Two, there are things in all of our lives, mine included, where we tell God, get out of here. I'm doing this my way. The Bible calls that sin. And Jesus came to forgive us of our sin. And three, today's your day to say that applies to me, and I need that today. I need forgiveness and a new life in Jesus today. And you've never done that before. Is there anyone like that today? Or today's your day to say yes to Jesus. Just look at me and raise your hand. For the rest of us, I want to challenge us in a few ways. Worship team is going to play a song, and I want us to come forward. And if you look at Christmas, you look at being together with people and you can name off faces and lives and names right now that you need to forgive because you've been carrying that hurt with you for years and it's time to lay it down now. I want you to come forward and kneel and stand or sit, whatever you want to do up front. You're confirming with your feet what God's doing in your heart. You're saying, God, I'd realize how much you've forgiven me for. And in the same way, I want to, I want to offer forgiveness to this person. I don't want to carry around the grudge anymore. I want to take that gift back and I want to give forgiveness instead. If that's you, I encourage you to come up, sit, kneel, stand, whatever you want to do. Let's respond. If you want more self-control and peace instead of anger and, and getting even, I want you to come forward, kneel, sit, stand, respond. Say, God, this is, this is what I need from you. And if you've got people around your table at Christmas that you know are going to be there who do not know Jesus. And their eternity looks a lot different from you. I want you to come up and pray for them. Say, God, I want you to break into their lives this year. I want you to break into their hearts. I want you to change them from where they are, not just to what you prefer of them, but change their heart, God. Lead them from rebellion to you, to followers of you, and forgiven by you. Do that this Christmas, Lord. Let's worship and respond.